Okay. You, yeah, the question box is still in the back on the table. Yes, is there anyone that needs a study sheet? Please raise your hand if you need a study sheet. Good. Anybody else need a study sheet? Last one. Can I have it? No, I don't want it. Okay. Okay, so we're starting Q&A. Last week... I don't know if you guys had fun. I had fun asking the questions, so it was, it was good for me. I had fun getting them wrong. Tommy, Tommy loved getting them wrong. What's that? Spike Nard. Yes. So what? You can study your Bible like you're not doing it now anyway. Katie. <laughs> Let's move on. Do what? Take Yes. Caleb is going to begin preparing tests, <laughs> weekly tests. So I hope you guys are weekly or monthly. What did you say? Daily. Every three weeks. Every three weeks. Every third week. Thrice a month. Try weekly. That's not how it works. I know. <laughs> Math is hard. Okay, we are starting Q&A tonight. So, there's still time to get questions in. Uh, this is kind of open-ended. I don't know how long it's going to take, but in all honesty, I kind of wanted to do this too because I didn't want to be right in the middle of a series or anything when the, the graduating seniors come in and then it gets confusing and chaotic. So, you know, Q&A is kind of, uh, if you're here, it's not like you needed last week to really get this week. So, uh, the... I'm going to go ahead. We're going to, there's no way we're going to get through all three of these. So we're probably only going to get through the first two. Sorry, it was a little chaotic here just trying to get started. So um, we're probably only going to get through the first two tonight. So make sure you're here next week for that last one. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Q&A. Uh, also, nobody put their names on the questions. So I really have no idea who asked what. So... If I answer your question and you're not here, sorry. What? Would you like us to put it? It doesn't matter to me. I'm just saying I don't know who asked what questions. So <laughs> just put your name on all pull all of them out and put your name on all of them. Okay, go let's go ahead and turn to first Samuel chapter fifteen. First Samuel chapter fifteen. Just so you know, Caleb, I am recording this. So Everyone can hear your hot dog comments. <laughs> First Samuel 15. I know. Caleb, you're sitting in the back next week. First Samuel chapter 15. I can't even get there. We'll get there eventually. Okay. First Samuel 15. So our first question is, why does God repent? In the Bible, right? Like God is holy, God is perfect, God doesn't make mistakes. Why does it say in the Bible that God repents? So we're going to just jump in right here. Uh, all these verses here um, under God repents, and then I have verses where it says God does not repent. Uh, these all these all say these things, like it says that God repents, or it repented God, or God repented himself, or uh, it's worded in some way. But uh, 1 Samuel 15, we actually see both show up in 1 Samuel 15. So this kind of helps, helps for us to see how it shows up twice. So in 1 Samuel 15, verses 10 
and 11, it says, Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It, what? <laughs> Repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. If you look in verse 35, he sums up the chapter this way too. It says, And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. So we see that God repents. It repented God. And God repents. But in the same chapter, in verse 29... It says, and also the strength of Israel, this is obviously talking about God, it says, will not lie nor what? Repent. repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. So, what is going on here? It says it repents God, God has repented that he had done this thing, and then it says, but God's not a man that he should, that he should lie or repent. So what we have on your study sheet is there is an apparent contradiction in the Bible. An apparent contradiction in the Bible. If you've been through our How to Study the Bible class, you know that this is one of the 15 rules of Bible study. There are no contradictions in the Bible. There are only what? Apparent, apparent contradictions in the Bible. So, your next point. When we find a seeming contradiction, we must first believe that the Bible is true and inerrant and proceed from there. So we see something here. I mean, even, even found within the same, the same chapter, it says God has repented of this, and then it says, well, God's not a man that he should lie or repent. And then at the very end, it says, well, he's, he's repented over this. So what's going on? Because these are the very things right here. These are the things that, that we really need to get a handle on. And, you know, if you're, if you're familiar with uh, even the answer to this question, these are the things that skeptics love to cling to. People that want to deny the Bible, people that hate God, these very things right here, these are the things that they love because they, they like to throw this out that, oh, that's just a contradiction. And so this is only one of, uh, of a lot of apparent contradictions in the Bible, but if you can get versed in just stopping and thinking and not panicking when it looks like there's a contradiction in the Bible, you'll find that really every contradiction can really be reasoned through. And this is just one example of that. So don't be freaked out because the Bible is perfect. Nobody has been able to, uh, to change that yet. So, and many have tried, many, and nobody's been able to. Most generally, you guys know what happens when somebody sets out to disprove the Bible. They get saved. They get saved because they can't do it. They can't disprove it. Its history is good. Its theology is good. Its, it's, uh, its story of the creation even speaks to what we know in science. I mean, things, things line up. So, this is only an apparent contra contradiction. So the word repent, here on your sheet, it doesn't just mean to, like, you know, repent of sin. The word repent, it, what it literally means is to turn, to be moved to pity, to have compassion, and to feel sorrow. To feel sorrow. That's what the word repent means we we think of it in the way that we use it and um and god just doesn't use it that way for himself because he's not a man that he should lie he's not a man that he does things and then feels bad for it in that he made a mistake or he sinned somehow so he must repent of that sin 
In a lot of these instances, you would see something like this. Like with Saul, it would be that he would feel sorrow over what happened. We know he doesn't need to repent because back in the Old Testament, I believe it's even in, uh, man, I think it's even in Deuteronomy. God says, tell the people that one day they're going to ask for a king. And here's what that king is going to be like when they finally say, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king over us. And this is back in Deuteronomy. Then finally this comes up after the book of Judges, and they want a king, and Saul lived up to exactly what God said he would. So God even knew. So for him to say it repents him, basically he feels sorrow, right? It's kind of like that could even apply to us, right? When we have, like, uh, I don't know, people that we care about, and we can see that they're making bad choices, and you warn them and you warn them and you warn them and you feel like, man, I, sh- I should have done something. It can repent us. Like, man, I should have done something different. We just feel that sorrow about the situation. So what does this mean? This means that God uses language that we understand. Go ahead and turn to Genesis 6 because this is the same, the same kind of context, the same kind of usage in Genesis chapter 6 that we find there in 1 Samuel 15. Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7. And if you guys want a big fancy $5 word, it's anthropopathism. You can go ahead and lock that one in. Anthropopathism. That is attributing human traits or characteristics to something non-human like God. So that's what the, that's what the, uh, the big $5 word for this is. Anthropopathism. Came across that one. Like you got to lock. I meant to write it down and I forgot. So, uh, but basically that's what it means. And God does speak that way at times because if he were to speak literally, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to us. So God speaks in terms that we use, terms that we understand to get his heart attitude about a matter. So Genesis 6, verses 5 through 7. Can I get a volunteer? Emily. When God saw the wickedness of man, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. Okay, so this here, this would be that definition that would be to feel sorrow. Um, God uses that language that we can understand. God is feeling sorrow over what happened. Just because he knew it was going to happen doesn't mean that it doesn't still hurt him. It's kind of like, you know, we, we read in John 11 where, you know, it even says, you know, Lazarus is sick, right? And they're like, oh, well, he's sleeping. Well, it'll do well. Let's, let's go. Uh, like, he's sleeping, but that's good for him. And Jesus tells him plainly, look, Lazarus is dead, Right? And then we get a little later in the chapter, and, and it says that Jesus wept. Right? He wept over his dead friend. He felt pain in his humanity over his friend dying, even though Jesus, as God, knew, I'm actually going to go raise him from the dead. Right? So God feels sorrow. Just because he knows doesn't mean it still doesn't hurt when it happens. Right? We know that people we love are going to make bad choices and we're going to watch them go through hard things. But that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And just because we know. So, God uses language we can understand and we see that here in Genesis chapter 6. 
Also, this next point, God also speaks conditionally. Conditionally. Let's turn to Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah chapter 26. Because this right here, this is a big one. Jeremiah, I'm sorry, God speaks conditionally. So, God lays things out in advance, and then He uses terms that we understand. Jeremiah 26, and this is very clear how God is speaking conditionally. And you know, there's a denomination out there that likes to preach that you have no such thing as free will, right? We're familiar with this. Everything's predestined to happen. The good, the bad, the ugly. God has predestined it all. Even if you're falling into sin, that was pre-ordered, preordained by God for you to do that. And you really had no choice in the matter, right? But we're going to dive into a chapter here, Jeremiah 26, where if that were true, why would God ever have to speak conditionally? Why would he have to make conditions if he's already predetermined everything that's going to happen anyway? And this is, I mean, this is a beautiful chapter. You could really go down a deep rabbit hole where this ties to uh, Romans chapter 9 and, and there throughout. And I'm going to kind of touch on that, that whole fact of, of context, uh, even with Romans 9 in the next question. But basically, let's just dive in here. Because it, it does kind of speak for itself. Just have an open heart, an open mind, and listen to what the, the message says, what the text says here. And you're going to see that God is speaking conditionally. So Jeremiah 26, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, came this word from the Lord, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak unto all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command thee to speak, uh, that I speak unto them, and diminish not a word. If so be, they will hearken and turn every man. What was that first word? Sorry. If so be, they will hearken and turn every man from his evil way. Well, what's turn? Didn't we just see that somewhere? Under repent, it was the first part of the definition, right? To turn. If every man will turn from his evil way, that I may, what? Repent me of the evil which I purpose to do unto them because of the evil of their doings. If they will turn, I will repent of me the evil that I'm purposing against them right now. And the reason that the evil is purposed against them is because what they're doing is, in fact, evil. Verse 4, And thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, If ye will not hearken to me, to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to hearken to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent unto you, both rising up early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened, then will I make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it came to pass, when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking, all that the Lord had commanded him to speak unto all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people took him, saying, Thou shalt surely die. 
Why hast thou prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this, this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the princes of Judah heard these things, then they came up from the king's house unto the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. Then spake the priests and the prophets unto the princes and to all the people, saying, You know what? I think I'm like... You're, I, I read the wrong passage. But it does fit. <laughs> Funny enough. Let me look here. I'm sorry. It was... 18. I don't know what happened. That's okay. We'll keep going, because this one actually goes to 19 in the references. Okay, we'll just keep going. Why not? 1 through 19, <laughs> verse 11. Then spake the priests and the prophets unto the princes and to all the people, saying... Uh, this man is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against this city, as ye have heard with your ears. Then spake Jeremiah unto all the princes and to all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that ye have heard. Therefore now amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will repent him of the evil that he, he hath pronounced against you. As for me, behold, I am in your hand. Do with me as seemeth good, and meet unto you. But ye know for certain that if you put me to death, ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and upon the inhabitants thereof. For of a truth the Lord hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. Then said the princes and all the people unto the priests and to the prophets, This man is not worthy to die, for he hath spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spake to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah the, oh boy, Moristhite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as of the high places of the forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him at all to death? Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord? And the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them? Thus might we procure evil against our souls. Basically, that's what he's saying is, this is conditional. God said, destruction is coming your way. Evil is coming your way. I have purposed these things against you. But if you will turn, if you will repent, I will repent of me. I will repent me of the evil that I've pronounced against you. It's conditional. It's conditional. Go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 18. Because this one actually shows the other side of it. That's why I wanted to go to this one too. Jeremiah 18. And it's on the, that big list um, at the top of your paper. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 12. Because there God is saying, if you will just turn, I will repent me of the evil. Right? There's evil coming your way. I'll change my mind about the evil. Right? But then in Jeremiah 18, let me make sure I got this right this time. Yes, Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 12, it says, the word, of the, uh, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. This is the one tied to Jeremiah, or I mean to uh, Romans 9. To the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels. All right, are you guys getting the picture? I mean, there's a guy with a potter's wheel, and he's making different things on a potter's wheel. And God says, I want you to go see this, because God is about to take this picture and give him some, some prophecy as a result. Verse 4, And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. 
So he made it again another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make it. He's in the middle of making it. It gets messed up. So he takes that same piece of clay and he makes something different out of that piece of clay. Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Notice it's addressing who? Israel. Is it addressing a specific person? No, it's a... It's a nation, right? O house of Israel, can I, can I do with you as this potter? Cannot I do with you as this potter? Saith the Lord, behold, as this clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a what? Nation, not individual. And concerning a what? kingdom not an individual to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it if that what nation Nation against whom i have pronounced turn from their evil i will what Repent. repent of the evil that i thought to do unto them and at what instant i shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it if it do evil in my sight that it obey not my voice, then I will, what? Repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now, therefore, go to speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, there is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. So here you get to see both sides of that coin, that conditional coin where we see God repenting. It's not just repenting because, oh, I did something bad. God says, I've purposed evil against you because of what you're doing. If you will turn from that way, I will repent me of the evil and I will do good unto you. But that nation that God raises up, he says the exact opposite also. He says, I've purposed good toward you. But if you won't turn to me, I will repent me of the good. And you will have evil. God speaks conditionally. We were going to go to Jonah 3, but we're not going to go to Jonah 3 now. But at the very end there of chapter 3 and into the beginning of chapter 4, we run into this same kind of a thing with Jonah. Right? God tells Jonah, go tell Nineveh in 40 days. They're going to be destroyed. And we know the story. Jonah runs away. Jonah finally gets thrown up by a whale. He goes in and he preaches eight words. And what does Nineveh do? They repent. So are they destroyed? No. And Jonah even uses that wording. And he, or, I'm sorry, the, even the, um, the Ninevites say, perhaps the Lord will repent him of this evil, of this destruction coming our way. And then Jonah's mad about it because he's like, I know you're a good God and I knew you would repent if they did. Repent, it's conditional. It's not that God changes his mind as it were. And that's what we'll work through here now in these last few bullet points. The fact that God changes his treatment of us in response to our choices has nothing to do with his character at all. He changes his treatment of us based on how we respond to him. Because God does not change, he must treat the righteous differently from the unrighteous. That just makes sense. 
That is God's character. God is holy. So next, if someone repents, God consistently forgives. If someone refuses to repent, God consistently judges. God doesn't repent like we repent. His treatment of people may be different, but it's based on how we respond to God. Your next point, for God to tell Nineveh, I'm going to judge you, and then after they repent, refuse to judge them, may look like God changed his mind. That is what it looks like, right? Especially when we read through the story. It's like, well, well, God changed his mind then because they repented. In reality, God was simply staying true to his character. He didn't change his mind. God always forgives those that are of a contrite spirit and of a broken heart and call out to him. That's not a change of mind. That's consistent character. And the final point here, at one time we were all enemies of God due to our sin, every single one of us. And God warned us against the wages of sin in order to cause us to repent. When we repented and trusted Christ for salvation, God, quote unquote, changed his mind about us. And now we are no longer enemies, but his beloved children. As it would be contrary to God's character to not punish us had we continued in sin, so it would be contrary to his character to punish us after we repent. Does our change of heart mean that God changes? No. If anything, our salvation points to the fact that God does not change. Because uh, because had he not saved us for the sake of Christ, he would have acted contrary to his character. God does not repent like men repent. So when we read things like, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent, he's talking about repenting of sin. And it's clear in the context. That reference in Numbers 23, 19, that's that's the clear one. That's the one that uh, most people are familiar with, where it says that he's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Because he doesn't sin. The sons of men sin. Our repentance is different than God's repentance. So, anybody have anything they would like to add? Say, question, anything to go along with this question? Because if not, we're going to move on. But if you do, now's the time. And it'll give you a chance to get a drink. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. What was the $5 word again? Hold on. Oh, see, I had it when I needed it. Anthropopathism. Anthropopathism. Thank you. Noah wins the prize. Did you bring a prize? <laughs> Anthro? Yeah, I got it. Just say no. I don't have $5. Well, it's not $5 worth. Ah, but he didn't spell it right, so no. Anthropopathism. That sounds so silly. Yeah. No. When the Bible says that God repents, that is an anthropopathism. How's that? I think I think that's a Calvinist word. Honestly, they like to throw big words at you to try and confuse you, so you don't question what they're saying. So, okay. Are we good with God? why does God repent? Do we understand why God repents? Do we understand that it's not a contradiction? And yes. It's just an anthropopathism, that's all. <laughs> so what's an anthropopathism? I just explained that. Why are you doing this? This class isn't on anthropopathisms, it's on Bible questions. Okay. So the next question and the last one we will be getting to tonight 
is when were, now the original question was when were verses added, but I kind of decided to include chapters and verses because neither one was there in its original writing. So when were chapter and verse numbers added to the Bible? So when the books of the Bible were originally penned, there were no, no chapters and verses. They were added for convenience of reference and quotation purposes. This is why the chapters and verse numbers were added to the Bible. And this is very, very important to know and to understand. And we'll kind of get to that. So the quick answer is chapters were introduced in AD 1227 by Stephen Langton, who was the then Archbishop of Canterbury. And then uh, the, uh, the first English Bible with the chapter divisions would have been the Wycliffe Bible in 1382. Verses were then introduced way later, a few hundred years, uh, in A.D. 1557 by Robert Stephanus, who was a French printer, and he did that actually in the, just in, the, in like the Greek New Testament, I believe. And then the first English Bible with verse divisions was the Geneva Bible in 1560. So yes, in its original writing, you know, when we go back to the originals, there were no, there were no verse breakdowns. There were no chapter breakdowns. What was written was a long-flowing document. Like, you think about I guess with the exception of Psalms, but there were still no verse breakdowns. There were chapters because they were individual songs. But, you know, you think about like the book of Isaiah, right? 66 chapters, 66 pretty long chapters for the most part. That was one long document with no breaks in it at all. So, your next point, the divisions in Scripture are helpful and they do not violate God's command of not adding words or changing the meaning of Scripture. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4 so you can see how it's worded. Because this could be a... Well, hold on. We're not supposed to add to the Bible. Right? Isn't that what God commanded? Don't add to this book. Well, let's read what God actually said. Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. Can I get a volunteer? Ty. Ye shall, ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye, might, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Ye shall not add unto the what? Word. Neither shall ye diminish aught from it. What is it? The word. The word. Now let's look at Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. I need a volunteer for that. Not everybody wants Jordan. What things soever I command you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add there unto you, nor diminish from it. Okay, so whatsoever thing I command you, are those numbers or words? Words. Observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. And then there's, you know, in Proverbs there, in Revelation, there's a couple more references where it talks about not adding to and not taking away from. What's been done here is not, as I put it, adding to the word of God. Because you're not, when you read, like when I just read through that long passage in Jeremiah 26, did I say, one, 
the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, two, and do you read the Bible that way? Do you read it out loud that way? Do you even read it in your head that way if you're actually reading an entire passage? No. These have been added for reference purposes. I'll be honest with you. When I realized this, that verses weren't added to an English Bible or to any, any Bible at all till 1557, there was 1,500 years where people didn't have what we have. Turn to the book of Isaiah. And about three quarters of the way down, <laughs> I mean, think about it. I'll be honest with you. It's kind of my next point, but just the, the next sub point here. Like most, if not all, man-made things, they can also be harmful. Because think about this too. I mean, like, to write a message or to even, even answer Q&A. I mean, we've got the internet. We've got verse breakdowns. We've got chapter breakdowns. We've got, I mean, we could answer, do all the study to answer any of these questions in a relatively short amount of time, right? Now think about a preacher that was preaching in 1100 or 600. They didn't have what we have. They had to genuinely study the Bible. Not like we do. I mean, think about that. If you didn't know right where to go in Jeremiah, what's the greatest, or in Isaiah, what is the greatest prophecy of Jesus Christ in Isaiah? What do you, do you guys know? It's a whole chapter. Greatest prophecy, clearly laying out Jesus Christ in the book of Isaiah. There you go. Now find that in 600 AD. Right? We can turn there in seconds. They would have had to have, I don't know how they would have found it, to be honest with you. There weren't breakdowns like that. So they actually had to study the Bible for real. Like, memorize the Bible. Not Bible verses. The Bible. To know it. To live it. To have it with them everywhere they go. So it can be harmful. Your next point, and here's where it really became harmful. All. 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 How many? All, every single one, all false doctrines are born due to passages being taken out of context. Do you know how much harder it is to take something out of context when you don't have verse breakdowns? Right? you got to get back in at the beginning. Do you know how many of these verses start in the middle of a sentence? Because the one before it ends in a colon, a semicolon, a comma, or is tie found? No punctuation at all? There's just, there's just no punctuation at all at the end of a verse, and then, boop, you're into the next verse. Just because they're man-made, not, not God-made in the Bible. But how much easier is it to make the Bible say what you want it to say when you can jump right into a verse because it gives us this false sense of a beginning of a thought or an idea or a sentence because there's a number there in front of it. All false doctrines are born due to passages being taken out of context. With chapter and verse breaks, it is easier to make the Bible say what we want rather than the Bible speaking for itself and us believing it. This is why Bible study rule number one is context. Context, context, context. And where this plays kind of into the last question with the whole Jeremiah 18 with the the potter and the clay, you know, this comes up later in Romans chapter 9. 
And this is, this is a Reformed theology hot button, hotbed. This is where they're going to take you to prove their doctrine of predestination to salvation for individuals. And that passage refers back to Jeremiah 18. It refers back to Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And it, it shows clearly without any doubt that God hated Esau, so Esau, Esau was pre-damned, pre-cursed, and there was nothing he could do about it. And it's a lie because it's not in its proper context. In the book of Romans especially, this one's kind of easy to, to think about, easy to lock in. Now imagine that this was one flowing document when it was written. Paul wrote then a letter, not a book, a letter that we've turned into 16 chapters. But it was a letter written to the church. And since we do have our chapter breakdowns, I can tell you that Romans chapter 9, the whole chapter is about Israel's past election, where God elected the nation of Israel to be his people. Romans chapter 10 is Israel's present, do you guys know? Rejection of the Messiah. That's what he's covering in Romans chapter 10. And then in Romans chapter 11, we get to Israel's future restoration. That's those three chapters. You don't get to dive in in the middle of one of them and say, here's what it's about. You don't. He's building this huge case about the nation of Israel, about how God elected them way back through modern day and what God's going to do with them in the future. Now, I once heard a pastor put it this way. And those of you who are, have been around the Bible longer, you're more versed at, at being able to take someone through the gospel. You've got the whole Bible to work with, and you've got somebody who knows nothing about God, nothing about Jesus Christ, and you want to lead them to the cross of Christ. Is Romans chapter 9 the first place you're going to take them? You guys even familiar with Romans 9? I've seen a lot of blank stares. Is that the first place you think, okay, I want to lead this person to Christ, so I'm going to take them to Romans chapter 9. Is it the first? How about the 10th? How about the 100th place you would take them? No, it's not. Because the entire chapter has nothing to do with the individual salvation of a person. And this is where we've got to be careful with chapter and verse breakdowns of things. Because it's real easy to take somebody somewhere and say, look, here's what it says. Don't you, here, you read it for yourself. Isn't this what it says? That is what it says. And without that context, I mean, you really, to get the context of Romans 9, you know what you really need? 1 through 8. Yeah. You need Romans 1 through 8 to see the case that Paul has been building from the very first words he said up until that point. Because when you don't have them, it doesn't make sense. It makes it sound like God is a dictator who pre-chose that Jacob would be saved and he would love him and care for him and lead him. And Esau was a curse and banished and he had no choice in the matter. If you just take small sections of one chapter of the Bible. So we got to be careful. I don't believe that it's sinful. I don't believe that it was adding to the Bible contrary to the commands that God laid out about not adding to and not taking away. But I will say we got to be careful because they were added and they were added by men. So, that's it. 
Any other questions or concerns or thoughts about chapters and verses being added to the Bible, Noah? That's why I also I, I like writing out scripture too. Like it's a, it's a cool aspect of that because you don't have the verses like that when you write right. scripture and you mm-hmm. see it in different ways. And that's... Right. And you absorb it differently too because you've written it. The context is clear. It's fresher, I should say, in your mind because you haven't just read it. You've actually written it down too. You usually don't start like in the middle of the chapter. You start to be right. Mm-hmm. Yep, very true. Anything else? Caleb, nothing from you? <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and I thank you that we really can go to your word and not be afraid of these things. Lord, you've, you've given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You have not left yourself without witness, and we can, in fact, trust your book. And I thank you for the questions that have come in so far, and, and Lord, I do pray that more would come in. Because I know there's many things that we can come across in the Bible that are, that are confusing. Sometimes we just need to, to take the time to stop And not just run right past something when we have a question, but to really just dive in. Father, I truly believe with my whole heart that that's why there are apparent contradictions in the Bible. Because you've told us to study to show ourselves approved unto God. That we're workmen, that it takes work. And that we don't need to be ashamed when we can rightly divide the word of truth. So I pray that you would bless this Q&A. I pray that that we would get to all the questions that we possibly can, Lord, and that you would be in the center, that you would be the one driving these answers, that you would be the one revealing your truth to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.